The term urban legends often gets thrown around when talk turns to fantastical stories that veer more toward myth than reality. At Thomas Jefferson University, though, the phrase hidden gems better describes a litany of interesting features of our campuses often hiding in plain sight. And believe you us, there are a lot here. Sure, some of what we found veers more toward the realm of lore rather than those warranting a historical marker plaque. Take, for instance, the time when Frank Sinatra used a building on the East Falls campus as a decoy to distract reporters who were eager to cover his 1951 wedding to Ava Gardner. Have you ever seen the gargoyles adorning the Gutman Library's exterior? Or the centuries-old Greek goddess statue in a Center City lobby? For this episode of the Nexus Podcast, we delve deep into Jefferson's history, be that physical or via foggy recollections, to get the skinny on unexpected, underappreciated highlights of the world surrounding us. The 2023-2024 academic year kicking off in full force offers the perfect opportunity to take a look at and listen to Jefferson's most intriguing hidden gems. We'll go through them one by one, offering what context we were able to confirm, along with the iffy whisper down the lane for decades legends that always surface in these sorts of expeditions. Let's start off with an intriguing video produced by a team of communication students last spring, as it served as the inspiration for this episode. The 18-minute video titled Beyond Face Value set out to unravel the 30-year mystery behind the identities of the faces sculpted into brick outside the Paul J. Gutman Library. The team not only interviewed peers about whether they've noticed the faces, most of them didn't, and also interviewed the subjects of the faces and the artist behind the project. Let's give the documentary a little listen before talking to the students about their inspirations and takeaways. How many times have you walked past the Paul J. Gutman Library? A 30-year-old building is bound to have a mystery. But have you noticed it yet? While the university name has changed over the course of the years, the library has held up its name and architecture. Some believe the architecture consists of gargoyles, but those gargoyles are the faces of respected alumni, trustees, and the notable Gutman family. There's 20 different faces around the Gutman Library. There are students and trustees of the years between 1993 and 1995. Have you ever noticed them? No, not before today. I've never noticed them. You do appreciate that there's almost like a time capsule in the library or on it. I think it shows that they're giving importance to the value of their founders and people who've been here for a long time, but I've never noticed them, so maybe they should bring more attention to it. And bring more attention to it, the team of students did tracking down the people behind the faces who offered their recollections of having the artist Sima make masks of their faces. Alumnae Arwen Matos-Wood explained what that process was like. We met with the artist and she prepared our faces by creating a mask. You felt a tad claustrophobic because this form had to go over your face, all of your face, and you had tubes that went up your nostrils so you could breathe while the mask hardened. And then she took that mask and reversed it out into terracotta and that's what's actually placed on the outside of the building. In the documentary, Seema explains an artistic process which involved coming to campus for interviews and research. She describes her mission as a balance of man, woman, nature, and technology. It was really an exciting project because making these sculptures, it was just, it was like delicious. They wanted something that would be in the manner of Frank Furness's details. I had this idea that kind of was like when you used to go to get 
a photo taken at a party and there would be a hole and you'd stick your head through the hole. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was something the different students would be sticking their heads through? Meet Alondra Gonzalez, David Bowman, Camille Mosqueda, Ryan Higgins, and Christopher Corsara, who produced the video under the guidance of their former professor, Bryce J. Renninger, in a course called Text, Sound, and Image. Corsaro and Higgins have since graduated, but Gonzalez, Bowman, and Mosqueda hopped on a Zoom call to discuss their recollections of the experience. Alondra explains how it all got started. We originally got this idea presented to us by a professor. We had two options for a final. One was uncovering the whole mystery behind the Gutman faces. I really liked the idea of diving into something deeper with a bigger meaning and actually uncovering a mystery. It was really cool how we had to reach out to the actual people. And that was the way we managed to get our information. It was really cool being part of something bigger than us. They said the project took about a month to complete. David mentioned some interesting wrinkles discovered along the way. One thing I would say I learned about this was how many people were involved in getting the building done, designing the whole thing, and also creating a connection from the students and the values the university represents. So when I walked through the halls of this school, I just see all these gargoyles and what people were at this school before. Did you notice the gargoyles before this project came along? Because I never had. Barely. I wouldn't say I noticed them without our teacher mentioning them. So it was eye-opening too. It was actually funny because I noticed them like a week before he actually proposed this idea to us. And I was like, oh my gosh, I literally just noticed the faces last week. Camille, how about you? I have never noticed the faces before. When we were all in the Gutman Library basement and he was talking about the different options that we could have for our final, and he mentioned the faces. I, I don't know what I was thinking at first. I did not expect them to be face molds. Did it almost feel like a true crime podcast investigating this, where it's just one thing led to another? Every single person we talked to gave us a missing piece to the story. And we're like, oh, that makes sense because this person said this. That's what made it even more interesting and more fun to be part of. Though the story is memorably quirky, the team said that it hasn't really gotten all that much attention since it wasn't released beyond submitting it to their professor. Sure, they've gotten positive feedback from educators with whom it was shared, but student feedback has been limited. Camille expands on that. Rice had shared the video with some faculty, I think maybe even the dean of the department. As far as positive feedback with faculty, that's definitely something that we've been hearing, but not so much when it comes to students. Is there anything I haven't asked about that you think is important for listeners of this episode to know? Even 20, 30 plus years after the faces have graduated from the university and alumni that we did contact, we still knew each other. It was really interesting to just see that it's like a small world. Two of them actually went back to see how the university has changed in 20, 30 years. This actually hits a little close to home to me because I used to be an admissions ambassador for the university. Hearing all those neat tidbits from alumni and hearing that the college was much smaller back then and that they all knew each other then and still know each other now is just really fascinating for me. There's so much life and so much meaning behind simple art. It was just so nice to be able to uncover that. It's nice to look around your surroundings and notice things and then dive deeper into the story and see what it actually means. If you've ever found yourself strolling in Lupert Plaza, chances are you've noticed two pieces of text-based artwork. One is a cylinder and the other a curved wall. 
Together they're titled Ars Mendendi, and they're the work of enigmatic sculptor Jim Sanborn. Sanborn's name is also closely aligned with his work Cryptos, which is located at the Central Intelligence Agency's headquarters in Langley, Virginia. That work is famous due to its standing as one of the most famous unsolved codes in the world. Cryptos features four encrypted messages. The fourth has left Codebreaker stumped since its 1990 dedication. We mention all of that to contextualize the impact that Ars Mendendi has had on one long-standing member of Jefferson's leadership for the better part of a decade. I'm Peter Scholes. I'm an emeritus professor of orthopedic surgery at Jefferson and the former Dean for Academic Program Development at the Medical College. For a number of years, I've been interested in the Ars Mendenti sculpture on Jefferson's Lubert Plaza site. There are two works here. Both are by James Sanborn. These were commissioned in 2007 and installed in 2009. They're wonderful pieces of art, but there's probably more to it than that. They're no more simply pieces of art than Aiken's painting of the Gross Clinic is an attempt to photograph a 19th century surgeon. In both cases, the artists had a message for us and for the people who follow us, and it falls to us to try to interpret what that message is. In the case of the Ars Medendi project, the message is complicated. At first, the screen seems to be just a collection of quotes from people significant in the history of medicine, along with some quotes from their less famous works. Some of the people chosen you'd expect, Pliny the Elder, a first century Roman statesman and natural philosopher, Galen, a Roman anatomist, Samuel Gross and John Gibbon, both surgeons prominent in Jefferson's history, and from Gray's Anatomy, the textbook, not the TV show. The sculpture takes a Sanborn twist because of unusual quotes featured in it, according to Dr. Scholes. The sculpture takes an interesting twist with the inclusion of quotes from people you wouldn't expect. There's a quote from Hammurabi's Penal Code, written in ancient cuneiform script. There's a long quote in Chinese from Kibo, a 4th century BC Chinese physician. A long quote in classical literary Spanish by a very unknown Spanish Benedictine monk of the 19th century. And there's even an excerpt from an 1830 geologic survey of Western Pennsylvania that doesn't appear to have anything at all to do with medicine. There are two from an absolutely fictional physician, Stephen Maturin, the naval physician, surgeon, natural philosopher, and part-time intelligence agent who features prominently in the Patrick O'Brien Napoleonic War novels. Why him? Why not Dr. Watson, who everyone knows better, the fictional physician who accompanied Sherlock Holmes? I know that series of books well. I was a naval surgeon as well. I've read the entire series of 20 books at least four times. And at least for me, Maturin is as real as anyone else. Is Sanborn just having fun here, or is something else going on? Sanborn is an accomplished cryptographer. So is Maturin. The Ars Mendendi pieces are very similar in composition and structure to the encrypted panel structures that Sanborn installed at CIA headquarters. Only three of these four sculptors at the CIA headquarters have ever been unencrypted. When we were just over checking it out, there was a truck parked in front of it, and you had mentioned that all the photos are taken from the back. This seems to me as if it's potentially coincidental. Would, would people notice this when they're walking through the plaza, you think? Perhaps it's a coincidence, but the statue lies in a position on Lubert Plaza such that the letters are best illuminated from behind. And the only way you can get a complete photograph of the sculpture is to take it from behind when the letters are reversed. You can't capture the entire piece from the front in one photo. You have to do it in sections. 
which makes it even harder to interpret. It seems like a lot of, I don't think manipulative is the right word, but trickery and aha, I got you went into this. I have some thoughts about what's going on here, but I need more information. Whatever else is going on, the piece has at least one clever play on words. Sanborn is an expert cryptographer. So was Stephen Maturin. Maturin was also an expert in the biological field that studies that subset of plants that include moss, lichens, and ferns, the kind of things you trip over in the woods. That particular field of biology is known as cryptogamography, cryptogams, not cryptograms. This is a clever pun, and I think here that at least Sanborn is having fun with us, but maybe that's a key to the larger picture. What parting thoughts would you like to leave listeners with regarding these sculptures and the, the mystery behind them? Sanborn's inclusion of otherwise very obscure quotes from medical history, these are remarkable and cannot be coincidental. Some research was involved here, and clearly research with a purpose. In fact, the inclusion at the end of the piece of the geology of Oil Creek, Pennsylvania in 1830 is remarkable. No one, no one would know that the oil bubbling to the surface in Oil Creek, Pennsylvania was used by the Indians as insect repellent, sun protection, and by the early settlers of that area as a patent medicine. And no one would know that the original purchaser of that piece of ground, James Nevin, a physician from Europe, would subsequently be the father and grandfather of two 19th century Jefferson graduates. Dr. Scholes's quest for answers has taken him to Maine in an attempt to catch up with the artist for a chat about it. He expects his research will end up published in medical journals and university publications. Before wrapping up our interview, he wanted to offer a couple hints of where things may go from here. Sanborn's work is indeed complicated. Perhaps we'll never figure it out, and perhaps there's no other message. But I don't think so. As people stroll by, they should take the time to look at one or two of the quotes, to look at the author of the quotes, and to consider why that particular person, physician or not, is included. One treasure trove of hidden gems is the University Archives Collection, which is generally housed at Scott Memorial Library. While the items are currently in storage as the archives area is undergoing a transformative renovation project in advance of next year's bicentennial celebrations, we couldn't help but dig a little deeper into the collection, which offered a fascinating look not only into Jefferson's past, but that of the medical profession itself. Hi, my name is Michael Angelo. I am the university archivist at Thomas Jefferson University. I've been here for about 22 years. The archives collection is probably the second best medical collection of artifacts and rare books in Philadelphia. We take second base to the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, which was founded in around 1760. So they got a head start. 
but it's a really great collection. Currently, the entire collection is in deep storage. One of our faculty members, Dr. Marion Siegman, has funded an archives renovation. So we'll have a remarkable new space with all kinds of state-of-the-art material. We have a huge collection of wonderful photographs, etc., going back to 1900 and a little before. We have about 8,000 rare medical books dating back to 1465, a really remarkable, wonderful collection, all donated by faculty members and alumni. Jefferson has a art collection, like most institutions of almost 200 years old. Our most important pieces by Thomas A. Aikens were sold several years ago to fund various scholarships, etc. But we do have a large number of paintings and quite a few sculptural works. Considering this episode is about hidden gems of Jefferson's campuses, I feel as if the archives is a treasure trove of these. I picked out a few that I'm hoping you can discuss. I'd like to start with the Athena Minerva statue. If you ever find yourself walking through Philadelphia, then go to the southwest corner of 9th and Walnut Streets. Look into the lobby of the Jefferson Building, and you'll see this lovely, little bit under life-size statue of a Greek goddess or a Roman goddess. It's Athena, if you're Greek, and Minerva, if you're an ancient Roman. I don't want to offend anybody. It was discovered by a previous art historian in the 1980s in the Thompson Annex building. That building was built in 1922. Incidentally, that was the tallest hospital building in the world in that year. So that's at one claim to fame. The statue was in a little niche on the first floor, and everyone had ignored it for about 60 or 70 years until the art historian took a look at it and said, this is pretty old. Turns out the torso is probably second century. It's Roman. The head and arms probably are additions in the 18th or 19th century. The goddess herself is the goddess of wisdom, also the goddess of war. There's a lot of multitasking up on Mount Olympus, I think. She also is the goddess and protector of healing and healers. So it's appropriate that she found her way to Jefferson. We recently relocated her so it has more public facing. You can see it from the street or if you go in the lobby, you can admire her. There were several pieces of the collection that I found interesting, and I'm hoping you can explain to the listeners what they're all about. The first was All Creatures Great and Small, a Renaissance Treasure. The archives has thousands of rare books of medical and scientific value. One of the more interesting, more illustrated works is the 1551 printing, a book by Conrad Gessner. He was a Swiss early, early zoologist, maybe the first zoologist in the West. He compiled hundreds and hundreds of animals in this giant book. The book is like a fortress. It's got heavy tooled leather on the outside, on wooden covers, a couple of brass clasps holding it together. You can pound your fist on it and you won't get in. It's basically like a zoo keeping these wild animals inside. And these animals that are illustrated run from the camel leopard, which we know as the giraffe, rhinoceros, lots of exotic animals like camels and other animals that are more exotic, like the unicorn. When Gessner described the porcupine or the armadillo in the new world, that was just as fanciful as the unicorn of the old world. We can't blame him for his accepting. He scoured the world, had all these people sending him reports 
from all corners of the globe. The book itself was very expensive and it turned out to be a real dud because no one could afford it. So there's not that many copies available. Whenever we have young people touring the archives, we let them look at this book and it's great fun. As with most institutions in Philadelphia, there are historical ties to Ben Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was the gadfly man about town, and he was also a man about the world. He lived in London for quite a few years before the revolution. The house that he lived in London in 1998, workers discovered corpses in the basement, six corpses, children and adults. There were a lot of interesting marks on the skeletons, such as saw marks, and one of the skulls had several drill holes through it. People were wondering at the time, what was Benjamin Franklin up to? Deeper research turns out that he had rented part of the building to a young physician who had an anatomy school. So these probably were bodies used for dissection for the school. Back then, there was no regulation on cadavers. So they may have been robbed from graves and surreptitiously buried on the property. When the person who we suspect was the dissector and teacher of the anatomy class died, his widow and children came to Philadelphia in the 1770s. The son became a physician. He taught at Jefferson for quite a few years in surgery and anatomy. His son went to Jefferson also. His son, being Adonel Hewson, who graduated in the 1870s, became a longtime faculty member here. A closer link is, of course, Franklin Bache, who lived from 1793 to 1864. He was a faculty member here at Jefferson for many years, and he could proudly say he was the grandson of Benjamin Franklin. And of course, Franklin being electrical, we have a number of artifacts in our collection, which are really early electrical devices that were used not by quacks, but by real doctors felt that electrical stimuli could improve health and repair damaged nerves, which we know today now is absolutely true with better technology, of course. Let's go back a little further in history. Jefferson has surgical instruments with ties to Pompeii. Absolutely. It's a really wonderful collection. We have about 40 tools and instruments for surgical use that were found in Pompeii after the Vesuvius explosion and destruction of the city in 79 AD. These are replicas made by a company in Naples, produced probably around 1900. They're now over 120 years old, so they're antiques as well. They're beautifully done with Around 1910, one of our board members, Daniel Bao, collected them on his trips to Italy. So he brought all these back for the students at Jefferson, where he was a really generous trustee. And they've been in the collection ever since for educational purposes, but also they're just fabulous to look at. How about the anatomical mannequins in the collection? We do have one very odd little piece. It's an ivory mannequin. It's a figure of a female laying on her back. She has her head on this little ivory pillow with carved ivory lace around it. We don't know much about it. In fact, there's not that many of these mannequins available in the West, maybe a hundred of them. There's been some studies done. They're different than the Chinese mannequins and the Asian mannequins, which are also ivory, but those are used for acupuncture purposes to point out things. This figure that we have, like most female figures, is gravid, as they would say. That is, she's pregnant. You can remove her extended belly. And inside, you will see a tiny uterus with a tiny fetus with a little silk thread being the umbilical cord. 
she's articulated also in her arms. So her right arm will extend up. Her left arm is bent at the elbow. So when you lift it up, her hand goes over her eyes in a very modest manner. We suspect this is probably early 19th century, probably Northern Europe, maybe German. We don't know what she was really used for. We suspect it was to help lay people understand the mechanism of birth. So maybe young women would learn this. Maybe it was midwives. The details are really not sufficient enough to understand what was going on. So it's a mystery, but she's a lovely little thing. She lives inside our vault. We're going to also hopefully do some videos and demonstrate her so she'll have a wider audience. Confirmation for the next pair of hidden gems was a bit harder to come by, as the historical record is a little, how best to put this, spotty? That's not to say they aren't true. Rather, there aren't too many people with first-hand knowledge of events in the late 1930s and early 1950s around to offer official confirmation. If you recognize the Von Trapp family name, it's probably from the classic 1959 musical The Sound of Music, which is the story of the Von Trapp family fleeing Austria and the Nazis at the onset of World War II. The family is depicted as having fled their war-torn homeland to the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia and nearby Marion. In a 2019 article, the Inquirer spoke with the lone remaining Von Trapp family singer, Elizabeth, who was Maria's granddaughter. Elizabeth told the newspaper that many church people helped them when they first arrived here. Among those people? The Sisters of the Religious of the Assumption, who note that when the Von Trapps arrived, the youngest family members were educated at the Ravenhill Academy before it became part of the university up until 1943 when the family settled in Stowe, Vermont. That much we were able to confirm, but before we move on, it bears mention that some believe the entire family briefly lived at Ravenhill before attorney Henry Dricker Jr. took them into his family's home in Marion. Head less than a half mile north along Schoolhouse Lane to the Henry Avenue intersection, and you'll see the White Corners building, which now houses admissions as well as the undergraduate and graduate financial aid offices. Fun fact, it's not too far from the home where Princess Grace Kelly grew up, she also attended Ravenhill. Back when it was a mansion, however, Four Corners played a quirky little part in Frank Sinatra lore, lending credence to suspicions that old Blue Eyes and Rat Pack Pals did some sipping, crooning, and hanging out at the Goldie Paley House, now the Design Center. It's said that White Corners was the site of Frank Sinatra's 1951 wedding to Ava Gardner. Suffice it to say, that was a big, attention-grabbing event at the time. The problem? There's no firm confirmation that it happened there. Rather, it's believed that the couple and their guests left a Center City hotel in limousines bound for the West Mount Airy home of a recording executive's brother. White Corners may well have been a decoy location, leaked to throw the press and paparazzi off their trail for a couple hours. Not sure how successful it was, though. Our search for hidden gems took us beyond East Falls and Center City, though. The Jefferson School of Nursing opened its Horsham doors to students in September of the year 2020. Inside that modern facility's lobbies are several glass cases featuring nursing artifacts and relics that, while not exactly keeping with the times insofar as how the profession has evolved, serve as a wonderful reminder of its past. We traveled up to the Dixon campus recently to get a closer look. Hi, my name is Marianne Kerr. I am the Director of Undergraduate Programs at the Dixon Campus for the Undergraduate Nursing Program. 
the historical artifacts that you have here on mm -hmm. campus. Talk to me a bit about how these came to be and what they are. Some instructors or faculty that have taught at the Dixon School of Nursing have saved little things through time of how we used to do nursing and how we've evolved. It's so important that we look at the relics and see a urinal is a glass bottle that they used to take and wash. And if you use a urinal in, in the hospital now, it's a piece of plastic and goes out into the environment, right? A lot of the relics really show us how far we've come, but they also remind us of how amazing nursing was in the days of Florence Nightingale, where she was the first person who said, maybe we should wash our hands in between surgeries and patients won't die from infection. And that was like hundreds of years ago. So it's pretty cool to see how we used to do things and how we're doing them now. Can you talk to me a bit about what your favorites are? Looking right now, I see the old nursing uniform, which I think is just so much different than what we used to wear. We always wore our white tights and our white shoes that were always polished before we came in and the white and blue uniform that had the little stripes. I, I love seeing the old uniform. We also have the little tea set. Nursing graduation used to be so much more about the profession of nursing and how honored you should feel to be graduating into this profession because you were the most trusted caretaker of the patients. So there was a tea ceremony where the students came. That was when you got pinned. That nursing pin was something you kept your entire nursing career. This showed where you graduated from. It really told your story of, oh my gosh, I was a really hard nursing program to get into. And they just had such a wonderful reputation of excellent care. And you got to wear that pin saying that's where you came from. Look at the old syringes and how everything you drew up into this old glass syringe and you used it over and over again. It's hard for us even to imagine because we've gone so far from that. We had a lot of pictures, a lot of the equipment that we used to clean things and how important that was. We have pictures of the old nursing classes and how much smaller they were. A microscope of some sort? Yeah, nurses used to actually look at a urine sample and see if there was bacteria in the sample. Different things like that, so it's really changed. Now we have people that do all of those things. We don't do that all the time anymore. Is there anything else you'd like to add for listeners? I just think it's so important to remember where we came from and how far we have grown, how much more we do, how much more decision-making power nurses have and how valued our assessment is. Years ago, you wouldn't say to the doctor, oh, I think we might want to do this, but now our nursing students are really listened to and valued for what they say. Dr. Jeffrey Cromarty is the Senior Vice President of Campus Operations in East Falls. When we asked him if he knew of any hidden gems, the list was long and winding, ranging from rumors of Sinatra's Rat Pack hanging out back in the day, and how the Common Thread Dining Hall used to be in the basement of Alt House Hall, where the locker rooms now are. There's all kinds of rumors that we kind of looked into about pre-Columbian artifacts that people had donated to us. We had them appraised and you got them for five tickets after playing skee-ball. That never panned out the way we hoped it would. One that stuck out was inspired by former President James Gallagher in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on America. Located along the walk from the main campus to Ravenhill is a labyrinth of contemplation. 
Jim Gallagher had seen one at Holy Family. And Jim Gallagher was really moved by 9-11. One of his college roommate fraternity brothers lost a brother in the Twin Towers. He wanted to do something in memory of 9-11, and he thought a place for contemplation would be the thing to do. It's interesting because students walk past it every day, and they have no idea that it's there. It's actually behind the president's house. Right after the old barn, there's a circular pavers on the ground that a student looking at his or her phone is not going to look up to notice. Neighbors would probably know it better than the students do because there's an old-fashioned water well, and neighbors sometimes take it upon themselves to use that water for their dogs. Our journey now takes a shift into the world of sports, specifically Major League Baseball, and even more specifically the former North Philadelphia home of the Philadelphia Phillies and, prior to their move westward, the Philadelphia Athletics. Scheib Park, which would later be known as Connie Mack Stadium, was baseball's first ever steel and concrete stadium, and it lasted from 1909 to 1970. This history is important because Connie Mack, the legendary A's manager for whom the stadium was renamed, once resided on Schoolhouse Lane. That's why the whispered story about remnants of the field being buried on the grounds upon which the modern-day Jefferson Rams baseball team practices and plays were worth looking into. Several longtime Jeffersonians say they'd heard that, and surely enough, it was confirmed by Tom Shirley, the university's assistant vice president for athletics, who shared, and I quote, Bucky Harris, the former AD and director of physical plant, said that in fact the rubble from Connie Mack Stadium was dumped onto what is now Alumni Field. Let's hope that means some of the good luck from the A's rubs off on the Rams because the A's won the World Series in 1910, 1911, 1913, 1929, and 1930. From there, let's take a trip back over to Center City. It's the late 1800s, and this newfangled game called football has started capturing the attention of younger Americans specifically as it pertains to this story, medical students. In 1896, Jefferson Medical College laced up its proverbial cleats and sent a team out onto the gridiron. Three years later, Jefferson football was established as part of the nascent Jefferson Athletic Association, which came complete with a gym building funded by enthusiastic faculty, outside contributors, and ticket sales to the tune of 3,000 fans attending a single game in 1902. We'll let Michelangelo take it from here. Jefferson got bit by the football bug that all the colleges across America had. So we had our own team. It was Rip Roaring Rollickin' football team made up of students. Although if you look at some of the early photographs, I wonder if they had some professional players in there because these guys look tough. They do not look like young medical students. Jefferson's team was really well-funded. They played all the other medical colleges, other colleges like Swarthmore College, which they always lost to. The boys at Swarthmore were a little bit better. They also played military schools. They played virtually everyone, even the YMCA. The game did not look the same as it does today, particularly when it came to protective equipment. That would ultimately become an issue for the Jefferson squad and the sport itself. In 1905, there were hundreds of critical accidents and 18 students across America died playing football. The chancellor at NYU was so outraged, he convened a conference. Teddy Roosevelt, who was employed at colleges to try and get students out of the study room and do some exercise for their health, was also concerned about this. 
1896 to around 1909 or 1910 was how long this intramural team lasted. I suspect it might have been because there was too many injuries and young physicians shouldn't be out there killing other young physicians. And also by 1914-1915, World War I came around and they had other serious problems to deal with besides playing sports. Though many of the hidden gems that Michelangelo previously discussed are currently packed away and unavailable for public viewing, he wanted to make sure to extend an invitation to do so in the very near future. The archives will be taking up most of the fourth floor at Scott Memorial Library, which is located between 10th and 11th on Walnut Street. We're hoping to be up and running by January or February of 2024 for our bicentennial, and we'll be able to have these things on display. We're open to the public. Make an appointment. Come on in. We'll show you the wonders. didn't hear about a gem that you know of, by all means, drop us a line to let us know. We'd love to share even more of these stories in the future. To learn more about this and other Jefferson stories, please visit jefferson.edu backslash the nexus. Today's interviews were conducted by Brian Hickey with production support from Dan Bernstein. Thank you for listening.